Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 221 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be speaking to Martha Ann Toll. Martha Ann Toll's debut novel, Three Muses, was shortlisted for the Gotham Book Prize and won the Petrichor Prize for Finely Crafted Fiction. Three Muses has received glowing tribute since it came out in September 2022. She writes fiction, essays, and book reviews and reads anything that's not nailed down. She brings a long career in social justice to her work covering authors of color and women, women writers as a critic and author interviewer at NPR Books, The Washington Post, Point Magazine, The Millions, and elsewhere. She also publishes short fiction and essays in a wide variety of outlets. Toll is a member of the National Book Critics Circle and serves on the board of directors of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. Her second novel, Duet for One, will be out in early 2025. Good morning slash afternoon. How are you today? I'm good. Pete, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to talk to you. Also great to talk to you. Three Muses is, is running through the brain. I haven't just finished it recently. And like I said, congratulations. Look forward to talking that a little talking about that in a little bit. Thank you. Um, tell us about the, the cool meaning of the word petrichor for the prize that you won. Uh, I was saying before we got on air, I had never heard this word before, and I actually thought it was a proper name, but it turns out to be an English word that means the smell of cut grass after a rain. Oh, man. So cool. As is the title of your 2025 duet for one, that seems to be an oxymoron of sorts, or <laughs> I always get that mixed up with a paradox, but tell us maybe about, about that, about the as, as little or as much as you want to talk to, talk to us about your future project. And also all the good stuff, you know, where, where should we buy Three Muses, any particular bookstores, all that good stuff. Well, thank you. I'll start with Three Muses. Um, it should be available in any bookstore. And if it's not, I always love independent bookstores, but you can get it on Amazon or online at bookshop.org or any, any online outlet. If your bookstore doesn't have it, it should be pretty easy for them to order it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Or your library, it's in libraries as well. And to answer, your, I know we're going to spend more time on Three Muses, but to answer your question, my next novel is coming out in May 2025. It's called Duet for One, and there's several duets for the in the book. Um, on page one of that book, which is coming out next year, um, there's a husband and wife, two piano team. They're world-renowned, and they perform as two pianists together. And the wife has died on page one. And so that's one duet for one. The husband is not only bereft of his marriage, but of his entire career. Wow. And um, their son, Adam, is a violinist. And while his father deeply mourns his mother, Adam is thrown into a state of confusion ultimately recognizing that his mother was not there for him at all emotionally. So Adam 
is a professional violinist. It's also a lot about his musical story, but his is a quest for love because he hasn't been able to really retain a relationship, um, probably because he needs to deal with his stuff with his mother. Mm. Wow. Very, very interesting. You, you talked about reading, growing up, reading anything that wasn't, well, not, not just growing up, but reading anything that's not nailed down. So what did that look like as a kid? I mean, were you the kid always in the library checking out whatever yeah. the maximum was? You know, how did that work with the reading and writing? Life? Well, for sure. And you sound like you might have been the same kind of kid. Yeah, um, <laughs> my mom and dad were incredibly passionate about reading and books. My mother, they were first generation educated in their family, first generation to go to college. My mom was a professional editor and she was freelance. She was a copy editor, so she worked at home. So she always had the dining room table filled with galleys and a sharp pencil in those days, no online editing. And she could find a mistake in anything. <laughs> um, and my dad was a lawyer who was passionate about the written word and um, he kept a big fat Webster's on a bridge dictionary next to the table and a, a set of encyclopedias. And if anybody didn't know anything, you had to stop and look it up. We had to memorize poetry for dinner. We, there were, my mother got me a library card as soon as I was eligible. I actually remember that I was in second grade and books, books, books. So I think it was in the water supply and also I just loved reading. I all my friends were readers. I was yeah, always in a corner with a book, basically. Mm. <laughs> Still true. Yes. Who were some of the the writers, or what was some of the writing that really you know lit that spark? Well, I early I for years and years I only read fiction, um, and really anything you know I read all the I read the children's classics and my, my parents read them out loud to us as well. The children's Homer, Charlotte's web, the wind in the willows and anything you can think of. Um, and then as I got older, um, then I graduated high school. I went to public high school. I graduated in January and I thought, Oh, I can't go to college without having read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And you know, all that. I'm like, can't believe I was doing this at age 17, but you know, got to go through Dickens, got to go through all this stuff. In fact, I didn't really do any English in college. I was a music major, um, but still reading. Then I went to law school, always had a fiction book, but now I am a more eclectic reader. Um, I still read, um, as much fiction as I can get my hands on, but I also read a lot of memoir and also a lot more nonfiction than I used to. I think that's partly to fill in my own kind of very limited understanding of American history, um, which was a very white um, understanding um, of my own Jewish history since I was not, I was not given, I did not have a formal Jewish education. Um, and then anything, you name it, anything. <laughs> So Africa, Christianity, whatever it is, I, yeah. I read a lot of nonfiction. How about how about the writing spark? I mean, where were you submitting poems? Were you, I seems like a lot of people were poets first, but I don't know if that was you. What no. kind of like, set it off where you're just like, oh, I can I can do this and people enjoy it. Or I enjoy it. That yeah. took a long time. I was always a writer. I always kept a diary from very young age. I always made notes about books that I read. I kept vocabulary lists, all that stuff. I kept lists of all the classical music I was memorizing on the radio. And then I, I'm one of four sisters. I think we used to perform plays and I would write the plays. So I was always writing. And my professional life um, before becoming doing writing full time was extremely writing intensive. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I didn't, and I was writing. I tried some short stories along the way. I was essentially rarely, rarely submitted anything. Nothing ever got published. But my mom died very suddenly in 1999, and that is when the floodgates opened. I had always wanted to write fiction. I always, I think I was always reading as a writer, like taking in the writer's life as I was reading. Um, but that was when I really sat down to write a novel. And um, I um, had the experience that many people have writing a bunch of stuff that didn't go anywhere, but that's part of your apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. In 2024, who are some of the writers who writing reviews and such for, you know, for NPR and working with the critic circle and all that, like, does that deter your, your reading pleasure? Do you read kind of like, like you're breaking down, like you're diagnosing, or do you feel like that enhances it? Or are you still able to read for pleasure? That is such a good question. And yes, I definitely read for pleasure. So my feeling, I heard a lecture a long time ago. Um, maybe 20 years ago about book reviewing and it was a panel and they all sort of agreed with each other that the point of a book review is to make readers want to read the book or you know to to, to spread the joy and not um so i try to find the best thing that i can on a book and think about what readers might want to like in it um i i have had a couple of times where i couldn't stand the book so much that i asked to be excused because i don't like trashing books and print. Mm. So the book reviewing, I think it keeps me honest on some level. First of all, I like knowing what's coming out. Mm. But second of all, it's it's a very fixed deadline, whereas writing fiction is takes a long time. It took me 10 years to write Three Muses. So it keeps me one at least one toe in the real world, which I think sure. is really important. That makes sense. Who are some of the writers who really, you really inspired by, challenged by, in, in you know, more contemporary times? Mm -hmm. Well, um, two writers that I adore who are, Vikram Seth is one, he's still alive. He wrote a book called um, An Equal Music that kind of shifted my whole way of thinking about writing, also very much about classical music. Mm. And um, Shirley Hazard, who died, I guess, within the last 10 years. She's Australian, but lived here. I love her writing. Um, there's a lot of contemporary writers that I love. I love K.S.A. Lehman and um, Garth Greenwell, Alex Chi. Um, there are just so many. I read a lot of books in translation, and there's a lot of writers from around the world that I love. So I, what I think I could generalize about is I care very much about the craft of language, so I tend to go for the more literary types. Um, yeah generally you you talked about your your training in with music your love of music you know the book is called three muses i wonder just about the idea of muses for you do you do you seek out muses is music a natural one you know is it something where it's just like art begets art where you just mm -hmm. you know sit in front of a blank page or a blank computer and just put on classical music i wonder <laughs> how those i don't know how those things work together such a good question. When I first started writing um, seriously in 19, again, it was 1999, I basically wanted to get music on the page. That was my very first aspiration. Of course, that's an impossible aspiration because music is ephemeral and words on a page can, can live. Um, but that's always my driving interest. You know, I want my language to sound musical. I really care about that. 
I also, for years and years, I did have music on when I was writing and I realized that it was turning me into this sentimental mush and my uh, writing was very, it became too melodramatic, too sentimental. Wow. So now I write in absolute silence hmm. because I don't want to affect my emotional state with anything except for the words. Wow, that's very interesting. Huh. Yeah. So three music came out in 2022. I, I would love to know maybe some of the seeds for the book. Sure. Um, well, I had the idea early on, um, partly inspired by a, a misunderstood story of a Holocaust survivor whom I was very close to. Um, so I had the idea of a Holocaust survivor who survives because he is pulled out of line to the gas chamber as a boy to sing for the commandant of the camp. And that's how he survives by singing for his family's killer. And then I also had the idea of a ballerina. So those two were like kind of floating around my head for a while. And I was looking around for a vehicle of some sort to structure the book. And I found, I discovered this tradition in Greek mythology that I had never heard about that had three muses. Sometimes we learn about nine muses in Greek mythology. They tend to be better known. These three muses from the uh, region of Boeotia in Greece are song, discipline, and memory. And I was, I felt like I was struck by lightning because those three things are probably the things I care about most in my writing. <laughs> so song in my book represents music and the trauma that the protagonist John has around music, but also that it saved him. And discipline is something I'm really interested in. I think um, we all want to know what makes artists tick. And I am definitely from the school that it's 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. And memory is, I think, what drives most writers. But memory is something that human beings have that we don't really share with the rest of the animal kingdom so far as we know. But we hold memories in different ways. And because our lives take place through time, time and memory are very intertwined. So, yeah, the book starts off, the introduction starts off with those definitions or descriptions of the muse of song, which is music's primal form, the muse of discipline, rigor, practice, and preparation for prayer, and then muse of memory, transforming forgotten to feral, to feral quicker than an asp's, A-S-P, asp's sting. Speaking of sting, John, who we later find out about, you know, an earlier name and everything like that, but John, 1963, and he's in Paris. Mm -hmm. and talking about you know the not for a temporary time not not feeling the echo or the sting of the of his german past or of the german past he gets a ticket to the three muses ballet right the, and at first he doesn't want to go i forget i think he kind of just wanted more to like explore the city right mm -hmm. and he doesn't like being around music because he knows it's going to traumatize him and as he goes to, you know he ends up going to the show and he's transported to childhood which in this case like you said is not not a positive thing um, he just, you know, he thinks about his family that's that's all gone. He thinks about the music. The music is 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 painful for him until he sees Katya, Katya, the muse of discipline, the dancer, and she really rouses him out of his the funk. He ends up giving her flowers at the end of the show. What what was it about the about her dance, about the music, about the music that he was able to get past, or at least temporarily get past those the horrible blocks he had versus music? What was it about her performance that really roused him? Well, 
he basically just it was love at first sight yeah. and which is always a hard thing to explain right but he just he was so worried about being in the theater and listening to music and he wanted to run away and suddenly she bursts on stage she's the prima ballerina and he thinks she's absolutely beautiful and he can't believe what she can do with her body and how she relates to the music and he has this sense that he needs to know her and she has a parallel sense that there's somebody out in the audience that understands her. She just feels that she, her dancing is being understood in a really deep way. Mm. But I don't think we can explain that kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, love. <laughs> right. Yep. Katya works with or works for or all the above uh, Boris. Sorry, remind me of his last name. Boris Yanakov. Right, yeah. who's the legendary, you know, teacher and choreographer and director. And you know, we we learn pretty quickly that they're they're lovers. Mm -hmm. The back and forth. The story goes back and forth. 1963 goes back to the to the end of World War II to the to the concentration camps. 1953 I want to say maybe back and forth but we learned that she really has a longing for him or thinks that she should be attracted to him or uh, she is I don't know the, the psychology of it or how much how deep you want to go into that but he he's not quite a father figure but he's definitely older uh, maybe she's seeking that out but but we do learn that they are lovers as well as collaborators, collaborators. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so I love that you asked this question. It was kind of yes to all of the above. She, you know, to be a professionally trained ballerina is one of the most sheltered things you can be. Like mo many in her time, nobody would have finished high school because he would go into the company directly at age 16 or 17. That is often true today. People finish with a correspondence course or something or GED. Um, and her mother died when she was very young. So her world is very, her dad's trying to keep, keep the house together and, you know, earn a living. And um, her whole world is ballet. So she definitely um, longs for Mr. Yanikoff. And, but it's very, very fraught. And there's a lot of me too in this relationship. And I realized I didn't, it's going to sound weird and I don't mean to be insensitive. I didn't think about it a lot because it's so real. I wasn't thinking about the political implications of this when I was writing. But then when it was time to publish my book, I thought the people will want a trigger warning for this. So on the back of my book, I said, you know, this is a, an abusive, fraught relationship because there's some people, it, it's upsetting. I mean, he's old enough to be your father and he takes her as a lover when she was 17 or 18. Um, but it's not all abuse. That's the complexity. And that's what's hard to get your head around. On some level, they really do love each other. And Katya, until she meets John and has a different perspective, one of her biggest frustrations with Boris Yanikov is that she doesn't get credit for co-creating their work together, which is very 1950s. Unfortunately, it still happens today. But in the 1950s, she definitely would not have gotten credit. And she loves that part of their relationship that they create these dances together, but he's the only one who gets the credit. So it's fraught on a number of levels. Yeah, the idea of the, of the Me Too for sure. I mean, there's, like you said, it all started on a 
not a lie, but it all started in a in a horrible way, right? It all started in a in a in a very fraught way, to say the least. Yeah. You were talking about like the GED and correspondence degree and stuff. When she when she first started dancing, I think it was the lady at the store was like, Oh man, she's eight. It's kind of old. <laughs> yeah. Started, right? Which it really is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of little girls start at age three or four. Yeah. There was a flashback to nineteen forty four, which is when her Aunt Mary, who was the one who got her into to, to dance, tells her that, that Catherine's mother had been killed in a in an accident, in a in a car accident, as a I guess pedestrian, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. And so obviously that set her her world um into absolute chaos. Dance in some ways was the the rigor, was the discipline, was the you know, was the practicality that kept her I guess kept her sane, right? Yeah. And it gave her life some shape. And I don't think Aunt Mary or Catherine's cat she was Catherine then or or um her dad expected her to take to it but she really takes to it yeah definitely took to it right away and like I said it was it was a respite for her parallel story in 1944 is as as horrible as it gets for in the history of humankind there's the uh how would you pronounce the name Janko Yanko. so his Janko. name Yanko yeah John, when John was born in Mainz Germany and at that time, his nickname was Yanko. And both of these characters have their name changed. We can talk about that. Um, I had a, my, a cousin, an older cousin, who um, grew up in Mainz and lost her family in the Holocaust. And she ended up here and wrote a beautiful memoir for the family about her growing up in Mainz. And one of the things that is so striking um for so many victims of the holocaust is she just like a regular living a regular life the jewish community in germany was very very assimilated and some people said like i didn't even know i was jewish until hitler came to power so some of the details from the setting in minds are from my cousin alan boucher's um family memoir but um uh yeah i guess i would say both characters suffer a lot of loss at an early age, John is perhaps, uh, I, well, I don't like comparing losses, but John, John lost everyone. Yes. He lost everyone. Yes. And as you talked about, I mean, just, I say decision and dilemma wasn't that he had a choice, that he was basically put, taken out of line and, and sung, sung for the commandant, is that how you say the word? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? And so many times throughout his life, he, he goes into to psychiatry himself, but also himself as a patient. Mm -hmm. And just the absolute horrific extent of the horror and but just the idea that he felt a sense of guilt i mean guilt definitely goes mm -hmm. throughout the book catherine later on or katya his his american family we'll talk about in a minute they they tell him you you have no reason to feel that and we as the reader know that he doesn't but i wonder if you can maybe just talk a little bit about that horrific sense of guilt that he felt that mm -hmm. he was singing for these drunken nazis as as his family perished so it's when Yanko is standing in line, it's his mother who's holding his baby brother, Max, who says to the SS officer, he can sing, Yanko can sing. So she saves his life. So it's a bit of, it's definitely a Sophie's Choice type situation. And um, it's so, the consequences are so terrible that, and John, John comes to this country when he's about, to America when he's about 15, he doesn't have the means to think through it. All he feels is this tremendous survivor's guilt, which is extremely common in this kind of trauma. Why did I survive and no one else? 
and it it is a huge amount of guilt why does he get this life and his family didn't but it's also an almost unbearable sense of responsibility that if i'm the one who survived um i have to do something with my life i have to make my life meaningful um to honor those who are lost and i also feel that um this is not something that um there's any closure you don't get over that level of trauma and that level of loss so partly his life challenge is to learn how to live with it and find some joy in the present and you know try to he wants to use his experience to help others yeah it, it reminds me a lot of the book night you know ellie, ellie wiesel mm -hmm. and like so so much of like oh my gosh it they almost it almost got to the end of the war even you know before a lot of people were put in the, in the camp it wasn't that everyone was in the camps for like nine years right Something where right where even 1944 is really towards the end and it's just like oh my gosh if he only could have <laughs> They only could have right. been able to stay out of sight for another. You know, just horrific, doesn't? So when the soldiers come and liberate, that's really when John Yanko, who had been, mm -hmm. who had been really cloistered, if you will, in the house, where he really finds out the full extent of the horrors, mm -hmm. and, you know, all the refugees mm -hmm. and, and people just just skeletal. You talk about how, and, and so I mean, nothing is left in minds for him. I, I can't even, you know. Imagine, yeah, imagine I that. mean, so there were different Holocausts in different countries. Sure. Um, Hungary was the latest and the Hungarian government, even though they were allied with Germany, mm -hmm. did a lot to not to, to prevent deportation or at least to stall things, but they couldn't stall them enough. So like most of the Hungarian Jewish population was wiped out, but it was, you know, as late as 1944-45 that they were deported. Um, and the kill the real killing machine. I mean, the Nazis in Eastern Europe were just basically having Poles and and Ukrainian Jews dig their own graves and just basically machine gunning twenty thousand people at a time. But um, the, the so there was a lot of killing before the what we think of as the well, the gas chamber was developed and it was partly developed because German soldiers were getting traumatized by killing so many people. So they needed to do something to remove them from the killing. So first they gave them silencers on their guns and then they were like, oh, they, they wanted to make it more efficient. I mean, there's a lot of horrible details here, but the real mass kill, I mean, there were mass killings before 42, but after 42, it was accelerated to a tremendous extent. As Johan or Janko goes overseas, he later looks back and is just like, oh my gosh, these, you know, these, these paper pushers, there's so many people in my life who are really great to me and great for me, despite the fact, obviously, he lived through such an absolute horror. He's named, kind of given the name by uh, one of the guys on the ship, John Curtin, mm -hmm. right? C-U-R-T-I-N. And there's obviously a lot in this book about reinvention, which, <laughs> as you said, you can never close the, the chapter on a Holocaust background is not something you can ever get over, but just this idea of in some ways, what choices do we have other than to kind of re restart and reinvent ourselves. Right. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I want to thank you so much for doing such a close reading of my book and for getting it. It makes me feel great. And I really appreciate you as a reader and an interviewer. Thank you, John. Yeah. He, he thinks everybody in America is named John. So he figures out, I'll pick a really American name. And he goes, I'd love to have a curtain and bring it across my whole past. And to your point about him 
And, and then the person on the boat doesn't know how to spell curtain, so actually spells curtain wrong. Mm. But to your point about unlikely heroes, you know, that's true in any crisis situation. People are saved or helped by very, very unlikely heroes. And that it takes John a lifetime to understand that the cook, the, the German woman who cooked for the commandant actually saved his life. He doesn't see it. He just sees her as being um, kind of like a taskmaster, kind of, right? Taskmaster, exactly. And not feeding him enough and all that stuff. But she protected him. And, and similarly, um, there were other people along the way who were able to help him get to where he got to. And he couldn't realize it at the time. And I think that's part of human nature. Heroes come from really unlikely places. But yes, he definitely wants to reinvent himself. He wants to not think about it. But of course, because of the level of the trauma, he can't help but think about it. So that's kind of a conflict for him. Yeah, man, the irony of when the soldiers come to liberate Frau Cook and how she was like, basically what he's he's not one of us he's one of them which obviously in many ways could be seen as fingering him as jewish and different in like mm -hmm. you know, going to the camps and put on the trains but in this case it was the opposite right as in he's innocent he's not one of us he's he's a victim here yes yes so she she really saved his life because otherwise they could have assumed that you know he was her son or something like that yes goes with a family of really just nice salt of the earth type of people the Katzes, and he lives with them like i said he, he moves to the states when he's about 15 16 and he definitely because he goes on the on the the road to becoming a psychiatrist a therapist himself and part of that is being a patient which he could use like all of us could use anyway um mm -hmm. but there's that guilt over the singing that we talked about it brings back so many memories his psychiatrist, is his psychiatrist unfeeling or is that just the way that John feels? Um, I think a little of each. So yeah. John um, is, as you said, adopted by a family that lost a husband and wife who right. lost their own son in Sicily. Their names are Barney and Selma. And they basically just adopt him out of the goodness of their heart. And they stake him to a medical school education because that's what they would have done for their mm -hmm. son who was killed. And by happenstance, a guest at the house says, oh, you should become a psychiatrist, be a brain doctor, because you sure need help. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as part of his training, he has to go through his own analysis. And his training psychiatrist comes is meant to feel pretty harsh, because this is such painful excavation. Um, but he, the psychiatrist, his name is Dr. Roth is really, really insistent. And um, also very unorthodox in, in the way that he does things. I think nowadays we would have different mo treatment modalities that would be more gentle, but um, so he has to go through this and he, John experiences it as pretty torturing mm. for having to revisit all of this. But of course, that's one way that people move on is by acknowledging their own memory. Right. One person who doesn't acknowledge his own memory, at least publicly or more in a public sense is Boris. Mm -hmm. John and Katya both, you know, find like their first lovers in, in these flashbacks. And we talked about Kat the lovers, Boris, and that mm -hmm. might not, not, not even be the right word, right? Because of the power differential. Yeah. But Boris, I think he actually calls one of his plays present tense and he he lives in the present tense. He mm -hmm. he doesn't write things down. 
you know, there's, there's no way of memorializing the the plays, the choreography, the 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 action. And you know, while of course John and Katya or John and Catherine obviously have such um, vivid past that really make their way into their memories and their thoughts all the time. Mm -hmm. When um, you know, John is obviously seems to be always haunted, and and we understand why. He he's talked about in the third person with the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Well, John starts to talk about himself. That's what I mean. Excuse me. Yes, yes. Because he he starts to talk about Yanko, who is himself as a boy, mm -hmm. in the third person, and it's probably to distance himself from that right. experience. And to your point about Boris Yanikov, the choreographer, that's such a good point. I never really have articulated that way but it's true he doesn't we don't know anything about boris's past we know that he was born in russia but nobody in the ballet company knows really anything about him does is he married does he have one wife does he have two wives nobody really really knows um and yes he's all in the present and he's uh, you know 150 percent about his art form that's what he cares about right there's grief all over. You talked about there's grief over Buddy. Buddy was the Katz's son who was a joker, was a pleasure to be around. And he was, like I said, killed over overseas in the war. John, in some ways, is kind of living in his footsteps. I mean, he's got his, you know, wear some of his clothes kind of thing, mm -hmm. lives in the bedroom. Like he takes his, gets his uh, medical degree that, that would have maybe mm -hmm. gone to Buddy. We talked about how John saw Katya in Paris, thinking that she is Katya, thinking she's, she's Russian. She has the Russian name that she was given by Boris. I mean, there's a lot there, too, about Boris literally giving her a name, right? Right. Uh, but he also he sees her in New York, and he makes sure to, again, give, see her after the show. And she's just amazed at his kind of old-world charms, just how nice and how seemingly anti-Boris. She doesn't say it that way, but how anti-Boris he is in so many ways. Really yeah. you know, kind of laid back and, and gentlemanly and all mm -hmm. that. But they do run into each other again. What was it? Katya's... Dad had a had an accident, like a an broken ankle, broken foot, something like that. And mm -hmm. they happen to run into each other at, at the hospital. Is is John kind of like a like a canvas that Catherine just paints, you know, this innocence and this this beautiful like naivete on? Or do you think there really is a substantial connection between the two that, that is a real thing? <laughs> It's so interesting you ask it that way. I mean, I think there's a real connection, but I actually think John is the one, he realizes his condition as soon as he sees the ballet at the beginning of the book, he was like, she leapt out of a fairy tale. He knows, mm -hmm. he, on some professional level, like intellectual level, he knows yeah. this is a fairy tale. Mm -hmm. I think there's genuine connection. I think yes. they provide a space for the other person to fully express their grief, mm -hmm. which they haven't really had before. They have some kind of innate understanding of each other and some communication that's really profound. Right. That John, for example, John couldn't get it from a psychiatrist and mm -hmm. certainly is not getting it in her relationship to, to Boris. I think they have a real love relationship. We can't talk too much about the endings. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't think we should have spoilers. I know, <laughs> okay. I know, I know. I know. No, definitely. Even even in asking the question, I'm like, I know that they do have a connection. You know, I guess it's just like any relationship where you don't, as much as they really do know each other. I mean, they express some of their deepest griefs, grief, mm -hmm. uh, grievance, you know, grief really early on. But you know, you never fully know somebody, mm -hmm. um, somebody's story at least at least for a while. But yeah, and she, you talked about like you wrote about in the book how he's basically saying five. I, I'm not exactly saying it correctly, but five minutes with her is 
was better than seven sessions with the with the psychiatrist, right? She, right. She really pulls it out of them. They really just have that that beautiful spark, that beautiful connection together mm-hmm. for sure. As we do, unfortunately, kind of tiptoe, maybe pun intended, with the ballet. But we kind of tiptoe around the endings, uh, around the ending, because it really is an interesting one, and it's maybe not what you think is coming. It's great in that it really it leaves a little bit to the reader, leaves the reader to to meditate on some things and maybe fill in some of the future. But there's also like a gap in time that's really interesting too to think about that you really um, paint really well. And it's like, oh, I want this idea of what happened in those in those interceding years. I don't know, you know, because this is fiction, said in the acknowledgements or in the notes at the end that that even the story you told of, I'm sorry, remind me of the, of the, the gentleman's name who wrote his his memoir about being in the, uh, a survivor. Yeah, Henry Perrins, yeah. yeah Henry, right, and I think he died 2022, is that correct? Yeah, he died just before. Oh the- my gosh. Uh, but, but he yeah. did know I feel happy he knew he knew it was coming so yeah, I'm glad he was able to you know he knew that much so that feels good well yeah the, the, the question is kind of connected to that too just the idea of though it is fiction it's not that you wrote a non-fiction account you did say that the stories do deviate you know in many ways mm-hmm. but is mm-hmm. there sort of responsibility or uh, an urgency you felt to you know, unfortunately, a lot of the Holocaust survivors, obviously, they're, they're very, they're getting older, and there's not as many of them. And people are trying to get more, you know, more videos and recordings. Did you feel mm-hmm. a sort of responsibility or urgency to get, get the, that story on the page? Absolutely. And um, also, because you're right, the generation that, that survived the Holocaust is dying off or has died off. Mm-hmm. And I very much believe in telling this story forward, not just as a Jew, of course, as a Jewish person, but not just as a Jewish person, because a Holocaust can happen anywhere at any time. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that our world suffers from a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I think these stories have to be told. Hmm. I wonder uh, about art and its transformative abilities. It's, I mean, for me to say that sounds almost kind of cheesy, but there's so, but it's so true. It's, I mean, what, you know, what is a world without art? Obviously I know you're mm-hmm. an artsy person, music mm-hmm. and writing and dance and all of that. I just wonder what kind of what you ha- feel like you have to say about, about art and its transformative abilities or it's, or I don't know, maybe that's too strong of a word. I love that you asked this question. I'm kind of a doer and not so theoretical about this. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's certain things that I'm very passionate about. Like, it makes me crazy when school boards are trying to save money and they cut the arts budget. Because art is an incredibly important way for all of us to express ourselves, especially children. Mm -hmm. You know, for children who are not particularly verbal or whatever, you know, having the arts, being the school play or like, branding and art class, it's an incredibly important part of our own self-expression. Art can say things that can't be said in words. And I, it took me years and years and years to, to disentangle this expression. I kept going to these readings and everyone said, well, fiction is the real truth. And I'm like, how? But what I realized is what fiction, what the best fiction can do is bring an emotional truth or a moral truth to the reader that might be harder to stomach as a lecture or in some more didactic Mm. form. Mm. So I think the best fiction is about life, but it isn't life itself. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Mm -hmm. Well, as a reader also, like you use the word transformation. I love being captivated or transformed by a book. I just, I'm reviewing this book that's coming out 
I think next week by a Ukrainian author. I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce her name, but the book is called Forgottenness. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. I think she, I, I don't know when she started writing this book, if it was during, mm-hmm. since the Russian invasion or not, mm-hmm. but it's about, you know, the, the fight against time to remember our own stories, to hold on to our identities, and the time wants you to forget. But if you forget, you get yourself into, you know, we get, our society gets into trouble if we forget. That's for dang sure. Maybe the last question for you is I wonder about like the emotional journey of writing a book like this, that's, you know, it's no Mickey Mouse, like, yay, flowers and, you know, roses. It's it's heavy, heavy stuff. (laughs) I wonder kind of the toll, the toll, pardon the pun, maybe it took on you. Yeah. So two, there are two answers to that question. Yes, it was very difficult to write. I cried a lot for sure. And you don't ever want to commodify the Holocaust or anybody's trauma. That's like really, and you don't want to make it cheesy as you would say. So that was a huge issue. And then I had my own private, like I called it grief. I mean, it was, I was, I was in despair because I could not get this published for a very long time. And I felt like I mean, I was standing behind it. I felt like it should get out in the world. And it took a long time to get born. So I'm glad it got born. (laughs) As are we. It was a pleasure to read it. It was a pleasure to talk to you about the rationale, the background, the seeds, and just kind of your, your, your worldviews. So looking forward to the 2025 one. Maybe we can have you back on when that comes out. And uh, just want to thanks. uh, Thanks so much for letting us into your, your, into the lab, so to speak. Thank you so much. I love the way you interview and I think it must be a pleasure to be in your classroom. (laughs) So thank thank you you so much. much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. That is such a compliment. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. What a pleasure it's been to speak with Martha. Continue good luck to her with her career and her writing and important work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Chills at Will podcast. You can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will P-O-1, the digit one. You can also subscribe to the YouTube Chills at Will podcast channel. You would find this episode and other episodes there. Like what you heard today? Please retweet episode info, share on social media, and via word of mouth. It all helps and is much appreciated. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. I have an episode coming up with Alex Squadron, who was embedded with a G League basketball team for a year. It is a book that is so much more about basketball. Looking forward to sharing that one at the end of January. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, and editing, as well as promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation. And I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 222 with Andrew Leland. 
a writer, audio producer, editor, and teacher. His first book, The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight, which is about the world of blindness and figuring out his place in it, was published in July 2023 by Penguin Press to great acclaim and it received many awards. This episode will air on January 31st. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Martha Ann Toll, whose work, like Three Muses, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.